Hello and welcome to this special episode of The Long View, the long view of 2014 in 2016. Uh, my name is Jeff Gamble, I'm the host of The Long View, and today I'm going to continue with a tradition that I have of uh, recording a special episode every year, uh, right around the holiday time, and uh, what I'd like to do is uh, try and post a, a look back at the best games of two years ago. Uh, there are so many fantastic podcasts out there that do a wonderful job of showing and talking about what are the best games of uh, the current year. You know, what are the top 10 of 2015? Uh, people do a, a wonderful job of sharing all of that. Uh, but since I'm kind of a long view guy, I like to kind of take a step backwards from that. And instead of talking about 2015, I'm going to actually take a look at 2014. So not a hugely long view, but a little bit of a step back and a different approach. And it's something that I hope that everybody out there listening appreciates. So Without any further ado, we're going to get started. Before we begin, I'd like to send a special shout-out to my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. As you listen to today's show, if there's any titles that kind of intrigue you, or maybe uh, you're thinking to yourself, man, you know, I always wanted to try that one but never had the opportunity to, and uh, a little difficult sometimes to find those latest, hottest games, well, go on over to Gamesurplus.com. They, of course, have the latest hotness, but uh, they also have a lot of the games that we've all grown to love over the past two years, going back to 2014. Uh, Gamesurplus.com has fantastic uh, customer service, superior packaging, speed of shipping, uh, all of the things that make them my first choice whenever I'm buying a board game, so go and check out what they have to offer. If you're here locally in the northeastern PA region, go and check out the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. They are conveniently located off of Interstate 80, right on Main Street in Stroudsburg. Uh, they are a growing resource for gamers in the area, so go check out their selection of over 700 board games card games, uh, comic books, video games, uh, no matter what it is you're looking for, you're going to find it. Uh, Role-playing games, everything at the Gamer's Edge. So go check out all that they have to offer at the Gamer's Edge on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. So uh, just as in years past when I've done this show, uh, what I do is a very simple, uh, basic sort of board game geek search. Uh, do an advanced search just, you know, just to isolate a year. And so the year that I'm isolating is the year 2014. Um, some of the games you're going to hear me talk about and some of them you're not going to hear me talk about because I actually haven't had the opportunity to play them. And since this uh, episode is all uh, kind of my ideas and impressions, uh, you're stuck with me. So um, when I kind of take a look at 2014 and I uh, put the search terms in to rank by board game rank, the first one, of course, that comes up is Star Wars Imperial Assault. Uh, this is a Fantasy Flight title that was released in 2014 and basically takes the Descent kind of system and uh, all the things that people have grown to kind of know and love and transport it into the Star, War, uh, Star Wars kind of world. Um, uh, unfortunately, even though I am a Star Wars fan, uh, I have not had the opportunity to play this one, so I can't really comment about it. But what I can say is what I've heard from other people out there and podcasters and people who've played it is that in some ways they actually prefer this to Descent 2.0. Um, they feel that the theme is, is more tightly integrated. Uh, they like the sort of narrative that it tells, um, the sort of scenario-based um, system that is kind of set up with Imperial Assault is something that people really seem to be responding to. Now, whether it is any better or not um, than Descent 2.0, I can't really comment on. I, I think I'd have to say that uh, there might be a little bit of, of influence in some of the comments that people have been making just because of the IP and uh, the kind of the universal love that Star Wars seems to have out there. Um, 
when you have a, a universe or a system such as that that's kind of loaded into a game, it makes the connection to the theme much, much easier. So, for example, the idea of uh, Star Trek fleet captains. You know, I'm very invested in the Star Trek universe. And so when I played that game, even with the kind of lousy components and whatnot, um, everything kind of spoke to me and reactivated my memories of Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. And so I really enjoyed the game more than other people who played it with me who weren't really invested in that narrative. And I think that maybe the Star Wars Imperial Assault might have a little bit of that going for it as well. However, not having a chance to play it, I can't really comment more about it. The next game on the list uh, is Dead of Winter, a Crossroads game. This one also came out in 2014 and was a huge hit and an enormous splash. Um, this is a game that used kind of what uh, they called the Crossroads system. This is one that I have played quite a bit. My kids really enjoy this one. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. It is a fun game. Uh, I'm not going to say that it is necessarily a, you know... A groundbreaking game, even though I know a lot of people felt it was with the Crossroads system. Um, being used to kind of narrative games and games where you have to make choices, um, like Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective from way back in the 80s when it first came out and I first played it, uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights and games like that. I, it wasn't so much that the Crossroads system was anything to me that was truly like groundbreaking. I was kind of familiar with that idea of, oh, okay, here's a story point here's a, an element, here's a decision that you have to make, and then, you know, these are the consequences of that decision. What made the game really different was the trader mechanic in there, um, that, you know, and, and the fact that everybody kind of has their own paranoia and their own agenda. You know, my own agenda might be, you know, I, I, I'm just always, you know, worried about food, so I'm going to try to hoard as much food as I can, and if I have, you know, so much food left in my uh, possession at the end of the game, I'm going to, you know, score points and, and things of that nature. And that I really, really liked about this game more than the Crossroads system. The idea that it's basically a cooperative. Um, you can play, you know, with, with the traders, of course, and, and, you know, that's always fun. But a lot of the games that we played, you know, that didn't really happen. And so we were playing fully cooperative, but it's not fully cooperative because everybody kind of has their own agenda. Everybody has their own thing that they're looking at, um, you know, their own thing that they need. And so I really, really enjoyed that. I also really enjoyed the, the pressure of finding refugees and, you know, do I bring them back to the compound? They're just another mouth to feed, um, you know, or do I leave them out there to their fate? And, and so those kinds of decisions to me were really, really fun. Um, going and exploring the different locations and, you know, the thematic way in which a lot of the locations were stocked, you know, of course, the grocery store has lots of food and, uh, the school also has lots of food and, you know, there's a little bit of medicine in there from the nurse's office and stuff. And if you're looking for weapons, you're probably going to want to go over to the hardware store, the police station and whatnot. And, and the way that you can search quietly or make noise searching, which is going to draw the attention of the zombies. It was all really cool. Um, I find the game a little bit long for what it is. Um, I really enjoy it. We've had some hilarious moments, especially with Sparky, the coked out dog. <laughs> we had one, you know, Sparky was one of the, I think he's, I think Sparky's the name of the dog and Sparky like had like a crossroad thing happen to him and he was like addicted to cocaine or something somehow. And that was hilarious. Like we, we still laugh about that. Um, it's just, there's been some great stories and great moments. And so I think the game is it's still in my collection. It's one that my oldest daughter in particular 
will still request. I think it's a really good game. I'm really excited about games in the future. I'm hoping that the merger between Plaid Hat and Philosophia um, doesn't crush that or, or change that in any way, because it's my understanding the next one is going to be set in space, which of course has me completely geeked out. Uh, because that's something, a theme that I'm much more attracted to than zombies. Uh, but Dead of Winter, no doubt, good game, really interesting ideas, a lot of fun to play, a real storytelling kind of element to it um, that's driven more by the characters and the players and the crossroad cards, I found. Um, but still, a lot of fun, and um, it's something that, that I think was a noteworthy game. So that's definitely one that's high on my list. The next one up is Roll for the Galaxy, but Roll for the Galaxy, I kind of feel like I'm not going to discuss that as much as I would love to because I really enjoy Roll for the Galaxy. Um, however, it didn't see any distribution here that I'm aware of in the United States before 2015. So I'm going to leave that as a 2015 title, and maybe we'll talk about it next year. After that, we have Five Tribes. I've spoken a lot about Five Tribes. I think people know exactly uh, what I think of it. Uh, it's a fun game. It's an interesting game. It's a puzzle game. It's got the unique kind of Mancala kind of me uh, mechanism where you are picking up all of the different colored workers on a tile and dropping them off one by one. And whatever color worker you drop on the last tile is the action you're going to take and, and the uh, opportunity to do something else based on the tile that you landed on. Really, really neat system. Totally did not appreciate the slave cards. Um, totally didn't uh, understand why that was in there. Uh, Joel and I discussed that on an episode uh, where we talked about kind of difficult themes. Um, it's, you know, my understanding that the expansion kind of dealt with that issue for people like me who were uncomfortable with it and those who were not uncomfortable with it and didn't care. Uh, you can just, you know, keep your first edition exactly the way it was. And I think it's a nice way to try to make everybody happy. Um, some people view, you know, my concerns as political correctness. I just kind of viewed it as sort of unnecessary. Like, why? Why did I even have to wrestle with that in any way, shape, or form uh, in a game like that? All that aside, it's a fun game. I'm really not very good at it. My wife destroys me at it every time we play. But it's a favorite of hers, and it's a really nicely produced title. It was a little bit surprising coming from Days of Wonder, which I'd kind of relegated to a much more lighter kind of a, a style of game company. This one had a little bit more meat to it. Um, I think that there is a definite penchant for analysis paralysis with the game, simply because there really is almost no way to predict what's going to be happening, uh, what the board's going to look like when it comes around to your turn, and so therefore you do kind of have to wait till your turn to figure out what you want to do, and that can lead to some downtime. However, if you're playing with people who aren't super uber competitive and trying to eke out uh, you know, uh, 11 points versus 10 points or something like that, and just are going to kind of go with, uh, you know, what they see, the first thing that pops up, oh yeah, that looks good, um, then the game flows really nicely and can be over very quickly and very enjoyable, and it's really easy to just set it up again. So uh, the art is fantastic, the gin cards are, are wonderful, and the special powers that they give, really, really a neat game. So again, still in my collection. Next up uh, would be Castles of Mad King Ludwig. This is a game that kind of takes the suburbia kind of engine, and transports it into castle building instead of city building. And I have to say I like this one a whole lot more than Suburbia, though uh, Suburbia with its expansion, um, hmm, uh, that, then it becomes a lot closer for me. 
Uh, the thing that I really like about uh, the Castles of Mad King Ludwig, however, is just the, the quick nature of it, and I love the auction. I like the auction mechanic where I have to set the price of the tiles when it's my turn to be the auctioneer uh, or the architect or whatever they call it in the game. I find that to be much more interesting than the sort of AI-run market in suburbia. So to me, that's why I prefer Castles of Mad King Ludwig. I've heard that the expansion adds a lot to the game and people really seem to like it, but uh, this is a game that while I enjoy it, I haven't really brought it to the table much in the past four or five months. So I don't know if it's going to stick around. Um, I enjoy it. I think it's a, a nice game. It's a ridiculously huge box for a very small amount of components, but uh, I still really like the game. I just haven't played it much. And so that's usually kind of a sign to me that maybe it's not anything that's going to stick around long term, but it has stuck around for, you know, uh, almost a couple of years now. So uh, it, it is a good game. It's one that I don't have any problem recommending. It certainly feels more thematic to me and more fun than Suburbia. Suburbia is a lot more work. Um, but Suburbia may be the deeper game. I, you know, I don't know. I just really responded much more to the theme of Castles of Mad King Ludwig, and that's why I kept it. I continue to have it in my collection, and uh, you know, I may end up pulling that out again sometime soon, uh, just to kind of test the waters with it again. So uh, that's kind of a really nifty game. Moving on, we have uh, Alchemist. Uh, Alchemist was the big hotness that was released that integrated the use of an uh, app with the game. You can't play the game without the app, uh, or if you can, it's like really convoluted. You, you definitely want to play with the app. And it's this kind of theme of potion making and trying to, you know, deduce what are the right kind of elements in order to make it. And it sounded really fascinating, but it sounded very puzzly to me, almost like a logic puzzle, where it's like, okay, this, um, you know, I have to test this, and this created this effect, so I kind of have to use this big grid and cross this off from here uh, because it didn't produce that effect. And then you try to kind of figure out what um, ingredients you need to make the potion. And personally, that felt a lot like work to me. And so I never actually took the plunge and bought it. I just kind of felt that it was going to be a, a really interesting game for sure, but one that was going to be a huge amount of work. And so I never really kind of invested or bought into it. And I don't really have anything more to say about it. Uh, it's currently ranked pretty darn well in Board Game Geek. So there's a lot of people who like it. Um, so, you know, Again, I haven't played it, so don't really take my word for it. I'm just explaining why I haven't tried it yet. The next game up is Star Realms. Um, this is one I have a ton of experience with, uh, both face-to-face, -face, in person, and with the AI uh, on the app. And Star Realms is its just fun. Um, it basically uses an Ascension-style system where you have a center row of cards up for display that you can purchase, uh, there's only two, there's really only one currency in the game. Uh, you could argue there's two. Uh, there's money, which is what you need to buy the cards, and then there's this kind of um, prestige, or, or I forget, they call it authority. Um, uh, respect my authority. There's authority. You can't say the word authority without saying that. Is it possible? I don't think so. Anyway, um, then there's authority, or you know whatever, and, and whoever... Uh, can reduce their opponents to zero authority and they still have some authority left. Well, then they win kind of by default. So you're attacking each other with combat values, which you can gain from the cards that you buy, along with cards that will give you extra uh, money or currency to buy even more cards. But what you're doing is you're attacking their authority, right? Um, 
so you're eroding their their uh, their power and their ability um you know to to rule and so uh if you can knock your opponents down then you win it is really not a whole lot different than ascension in that you're kind of just trying to come up with combos there's different kinds of suits if you want to think of them that way that all combo deliciously together um they kind of have their specialties the blue suit uh, gives you constant boost to your authority, so it makes you incredibly hard to kill. Uh, the green suit is just incredibly aggressive. It's the blobs, and uh, they're just great at just pounding people. Uh, the yellow suit is great for drawing cards and cycling through your cards and um, you know, kind of giving you those effects. And so each of them kind of has their own little niche, and so there's great opportunities to build your deck and focus on either one color or, more reasonably, two colors, and you know, see what see what you can do. Um, because of that center flop, you, you don't always have the cards come out that you might want or need. Uh, but uh, you know, it's still just a lot of fun. It's a quick game. You can take it anywhere. It's in a little box. Uh, the expansions that have been offered so far add a lot to the game, in my opinion. Uh, they offer kind of one-off, one-shot kind of power cards that everybody gets at the beginning. Uh, more cards for the central deck. Uh, events, um, scenarios, uh, all of these different kinds of things. And then, of course, there's other ways to play the game, which I found really interesting. Uh, there's like a Galactic Overlord, where it's kind of like everybody against one. Um, and, and I really enjoy that kind of variety that Star Realms offers. So to me, this has been one of my most played games, and a game that I enjoy and continue to have in my collection. So that's Star Realms. Next up is Patchwork, uh, also listed as a 2014 I'm a little unsure of whether or not I should talk about this one because I just got it like two months ago. Um, I believe this one was available in 2014, so we'll go ahead and talk about it, although it was close. It was really close to not having distribution here in the U.S. I uh, you know, managed to get my copy through Game Surplus. Um, this is a Uwe Rosenberg game and very different for him. This is a game about uh, building a quilt, and so <laughs> you're... Your whole economy is your buttons. It's driven by the number of buttons that you have. And any game where you get to say the word button economy is kind of fun. So uh, it's not a theme that would have ever truly interested me, but I knew it would interest my wife. It was a two-player game, and so I picked it up. And we've played it quite a bit. And uh, it, there's definitely more depth to the game than there first appears. Uh, you know, going for the cheapest quilt that you can make uh, will almost always lose you the game. But buying the most expensive quilt patches that give you the most button income. See, I got to say button income. Isn't that fun? The most expensive uh, expensive patches that give you button income will kind of almost bankrupt you. And your 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 score is basically based on the number of buttons you have in your possession at the end of the game. Plus... Um, the number, I'm sorry, not plus, minus uh, two points for every blank space on your board. And so there's this real interesting push and pull between, you know, do I buy these cheap uh, quilt patches that generally are very large and cover up a lot of space but give me no button income, or do I buy these other pieces that are quite expensive but give me three or four buttons every time I take button income? Um, you know, hmm, you know, what, what should I do here? So there's, there's a really interesting kind of balance there, but what I'm finding in practice, which could be just because we're not very good at the game, is that somebody always seems to win and somebody seems to lose. Now, before you jump on me about that and say, well, duh, that's every game that there is, what I mean is that somebody seems to win rather handily, 
and someone seems to lose rather badly. Um, I haven't had too many close games of this. And so this has actually started to turn my wife off uh, about this game. She kind of feels like, well, you know, um, I just, I, I can't seem to make a go of this. And, uh, you know, the, the final score is like she has, you know, four and I have, you know, 22 or something like that. And it's just not even close. Um, you know, she's had a couple of games, as have I, where like, you know, you end up with a negative score, like negative two, negative six. Um, so the game can be kind of unforgiving and it can be kind of swingy in the final scores. And that's something that has kind of bothered my wife which means it hasn't been getting as much playtime as I thought it was going to. So, again, that could just be the fact that we're not very good at the game uh, because I sense that there's definitely some things that are built in there that as you continue to play, you should get better. Uh, but my wife's usually extremely good at these kind of puzzle games and um, math kind of games, you know. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, buying a expensive patch makes a whole lot of sense earlier in the game because you're going to be taking button income so many times during the course of the game. And therefore, as long as you're coming out ahead, in other words, you're gaining more income than you're losing by buying the patch is generally a good move. I mean, like she understands all of that really well. And she's really good at mathing those kinds of things out. And yet she kind of feels that the game is a little random for her. So I don't know. Um, you know, this is one I still have in my collection, but the jury is still out on this one for me. Um, I think it's cute. I think it's clever, but I don't know if it's going to have staying power um, in the long run. The next game up is Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. Well, Legendary Encounters I haven't played, so I can't really say anything about it. The Legendary system as a whole I have left behind only because it is such a bear for me to kind of uh, sort through, set up, play, and then tear down and put away that it kind of became a bit of a turnoff. It, it was almost like a, hey, that's my fish kind of thing, but magnified on a scale of, you know, a magnitude of 10. You know, hey, that's my fish can take almost as long to set up as it can to play. And as much as I love, hey, that's my fish and think it's a fantastic little game, um, it's almost annoying how long it takes to set it up. And so, you know, by the time you get all the tiles arranged and by the time everybody places their penguins, it's like, geez, you know, it, it, it took me as long to set it up and, and then tear it down and put it away as it did to play the game. I kind of had that same feeling with Legendary. Um, it just took so long and it was difficult to set up um, that I didn't even look at the alien encounters as much as I love the, the kind of alien universe. It wasn't strong enough to get me to dive into that. So I can't really speak about that. Okay. After that, we have Splendor. Well, <laughs> Splendor, Splendor, Splendor. Uh, Joel really disagrees with me about this. He loves Splendor. Me, I did not care for it at all. I'm one of the few people that kind of felt that it was a game that uh, did not work particularly well. Uh, it was a game that I felt had some flaws, in particular with, geez, just the flop of the cards. And if you don't get the cards that you need to be working to get the person cards in the top row, which is really usually how the game is won, then you're kind of stuck. Um, you know, you, you, I've tried like every strategy. I've tried cornering the market on a particular type of gem. I have tried uh, diversification. I've tried, um, you know, getting really cheap uh, gem mines so that I can, you know, produce lots of gems every turn. Um, and what I, uh, you know, kind of kept coming back to an inescapable fact 
was that there are plenty of times when a card is flipped over in one of the four, I think, to the four, I think it's four rows of cards, maybe in one row of people or whatever. It's been a while since I played it. But one inescapable fact, which is if I flip up a card that is, say, a blue gem mine, okay, and it requires three gems in order to build it, and the person, you know, that, I mean, I flip it up at the end of my turn because I just bought one that cost me four gems, or I just bought one that cost me five gems. And, oh, look, I flip up another one for the other players that only requires three. Well, guess what? You know, it's gone before I get a chance to get it. And they just paid a whole lot less for exactly the same benefit than I just got. And I'm going to lose because of that. There's just no way around that. There's no way around that. And I've heard lots of threads, and I know there's going to be people who disagree with me, but I played the game a lot. I probably played this game like 40 times uh, between introducing it to family and friends because there's, there's no doubt it's easy to learn, fun to play, but I kind of came to the conclusion that the game just didn't work for me at all because there was like no way that I could seem to uh, wrap my mind around the fact that it's not a game that you can get better at. Um, and I've heard people argue against that too, but in my experience, there have been so many games of Splendor that I've played that at the end of the game, I have no idea why I lost because I don't feel I made bad choices. I don't feel I had a bad strategy overarching to begin the game. I just didn't get the cards. I didn't get the cards. Other people did. They won. I lost. Okay, let's set it up again. Wasn't that fun? Well, sure, but no, not really. I, it just... After a while, it kind of overstayed its welcome for me, and I, I really kind of just grew, uh, grew um, less and less enamored of it, and finally I just moved it along. So Splendor, you know, was nice. You know, it, it's it's easy to play, easy to teach. It's a good gateway game, but I, at the end of the day, I felt that the, the flip of the card had way too much of an impact. Let me give you an example uh, now that I'm sitting here talking about it again. It's been like months since I've talked about Splendor. Uh, or hated on it, depending on what your point of view is. But I'm, I'm trying to be fair about this and trying to explain what I mean. There's another game called Port Royal. And Port Royal, you flip over cards, and there are cards that you can buy. They're called person cards. They're going to give you some sort of power in the game, some sort of an effect, something that's going to help you in the game. And I'll flip over two cards of exactly the same type, okay? So I might flip over two cards that are going to give me a bonus every time I meet a certain condition on my turn of two coins. And one of them costs seven. One of them costs nine. And so you might look at that and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. They both do the same thing, just like in Splendor. They're both blue gem mines. One of them costs five gems to build. One of them only costs three. Well, you know, so what's the... What's the difference? What's the, well, there is no difference in Splendor. But in Port Royal, if I buy the $7 card, okay, that gives me that benefit, I get two victory points for it. If I buy the $9 card, I get three victory points for it. So, yes, that card was more expensive, but it's actually going to give me more victory points. And it's basically the first person who reaches 12 victory points ends the game. And as long as nobody on their last turn can exceed your score, you're going to win the game. And so there's like a difference in the benefit according to the cost of the card. And so that to me works. It's like, okay, well, I can have the same power for two bucks less, but you know what? I'm flush with money right now. 
and I'm trying to avoid taxation, which is a card that can flip up in uh, Port Royal. I'm trying to avoid taxation, so you know what? I'm going to go for the more expensive card because I got the money to burn, and it's going to be an extra victory point. That's a better move for me, and I get the exact same benefit. Or in, in the flip side, money's a little tight for me. Um, I think I'm going to go for the $7 card because I'm going to get the exact same benefit. I'm still getting two victory points, which is nothing to sneeze at, right? So to me, there being a difference in what you get based on what you pay makes sense. In Splendor, that didn't happen. And so to me, the luck of that flop of, you know, flipping up a card for the next player and, you know, the other three players at the table going, ooh, I've got that. And you're sitting there like, really? Really? I had to work for like four turns to get what I needed for this stupid card. And I just happened to flip one up for you and you're like, ooh, I've got that. And then they snatch it right up and you're like, yeah, that's great. That's great. That makes me happy. Uh, no, actually it doesn't. It makes me furious, which is why I don't like Splendor. Okay, enough about that. Next up, we had Imperial Settlers, which is my game that I completely misjudged and have had to completely issue a retraction on. And this has actually become one of my favorite games, is Imperial Splendor. So this is one that's going to stick around in my collection for a long time, and I'll tell you why. The thing that makes Imperial Settlers um, such a great game uh, is the asymmetry of the factions. And asymmetry has really been kind of like a buzzword uh, for a while now in the hobby. I mean, I'm thinking about games like uh, Netrunner, and of course going all the way back to Magic the Gathering, uh, this idea of different factions, right, and, and having different abilities and different strengths and weaknesses and things of that nature. And what Imperial Settlers does is it kind of gives you this kind of uh, engine building game. Um, and it, it allows you to kind of explore each of these factions. There's four that come in the base box. And it also kind of provides like almost a handicapping system, which I really like because really when you get right down to it, there are some factions, and it says so right in the rulebook, Ignacy talks about this, that some factions are a little bit easier to play, a little bit more straightforward, and some are a little more challenging to play. So what's really cool is that once you've explored all of these factions, when you're introducing the game to new players, you know, you kind of can handicap yourself. You can give them, you know, a faction like the Egyptians, which are pretty straightforward, pretty powerful. They're going to generate a lot of income and free resources through gold. And so it kind of gives you this way to kind of continually introduce this game to new players, but have a, a much more level playing field experience because the game does definitely reward repeated play. There are card combinations in every deck. And then once you add in some of the expansions, like Why Can't We Be Friends and um, you know, the uh, Atlanteans expansion, um, it just builds uh, all of this to a new level because now you really have deck building options that are included in here. And so you can kind of customize and hone each of the factions. There's a lot to explore in this game. And the other thing to me that really sets it apart is that there's a lot of direct kind of conflict and interaction. Uh, you actually can physically go after each other and raid each other and, uh, you know, burn each other's common structures to the ground and things of that nature. Um, and so that really makes it kind of uh, even more differentiated than other games of its kind because a lot of times that direct interaction is really lacking. 
it is expensive to do in game terms, but it is possible. And I've seen quite a few games won with kind of little surgical strikes towards the end, uh, crippling maybe part of a victory point economy um, that someone has, has kind of created. Um, and so this is a game that I really, really continue to enjoy. And every time I pull it out and play it, I have a lot of fun. Um, I think if you're going to play it for the first couple of times, you should probably try to do it as a two and three player. But if you're playing with a table full of people who know it, then four player is absolutely awesome. There's no problem with that at all. Uh, so much of what you're doing is almost simultaneous. So um, I, I really, really like uh, Imperial Settlers. It's a game that when I first kind of saw it and played it, uh, kind of misunderstood some of the rules, but then after I uh, kind of got all that straightened out, uh, the game kind of rocketed to the top of my list. And I would say this is definitely one of my top games, personally, uh, of 2014. So, next one on our list is Fields of Arl. Uh, Fields of Arl is a, another of the kind of Uwe Rosenberg kind of getting back to the sort of farming kind of a thing, but it's a two-player only game, and it operates under these kind of almost seasonal aspects. So you have your kind of spring and summer, and then your fall and winter. And the interesting part about the game is it it bears a lot of similarities to games like Agricola and things like that because there's action selection spaces and you have family members, but you're never going to grow your family. Your family is never going to get any larger. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, you still have to worry about kind of like, you know, food and fuel and things of that nature uh, as you go into the winter, but the, the neat thing about it is it's blunted. You know, it reminds me a little bit more of Lahav. It's a little kindler and gentler. It's not as difficult. It's not this overarching concern like it is in Agricola. And so you have this kind of real non-linear game in Fields of Arl. And the first time I played it, I remember kind of being overwhelmed because there's no real clear direction. There's no real kind of like, oh, well, obviously I should do this. Everything in the game can generate you victory points. It almost feels like a Stefan Feld in that way. And so the path that you choose to take, uh, largely, of course, is going to be influenced by your opponent, because if you try to take the same paths, you're going to be bumping heads the entire time. But at the same time, if you can find your own niche, your own thing, I'm going to be like a, you know, a, a tanner kind of a guy this turn, and I'm going to make all my deliveries, and uh, you know, someone else is really focusing on filling their board and farming with a lot of flax and um, you know, a lot of wheat, and so they're going to be uh, you know, kind of going down that path. Another person's really kind of going heavy into animals or whatever on another play. So there's all these different kinds of approaches and strategies that you can take, which makes the game have that almost sandboxy kind of feel. Now, it's not a sandbox, um, but but it's it's kind of got a little bit of that feel because you don't really have a clear idea of what direction you should take. And so everything feels very wide open and very open for, for exploration. Um, however, there are bounds and limits uh, within the game. And so I really find that I like this as a two-player game. I kind of feel like it is complex and rich and rewarding um, and it does surprisingly kind of play out differently uh, each time. Uh, the only part of the game that feels a little samey to me after a lot of plays of this is the delivery system. 
Um, you know, generally, you know, if you're playing well, you're going to get all your deliveries made. Um, and so there's not a lot of tension there. It almost ends up being a zero-sum kind of an affair. I have yet to try a game, which maybe if I'm a little more gutsy, I will, uh, where I don't worry about that at all, and I try to maximize victory points through other methods or something of that nature. So um, these are all things that I find are really interesting. Uh, the, the, there's some variability in the buildings that come out. Not a lot, but there's some, which to me improves it over Aura at Labora, which has the same kind of processional you know, revealing of the same buildings every single game, and there's like no variety. There's 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 not much that you can uh, wiggle around in there. You know that these buildings are coming out, kind of a thing. And so, to me, Fields of Arl is a fun game. Um, I really enjoy it. My wife really enjoys it, which helps, and it's very challenging. So um, that's why it's in my collection now, and I think it's going to stay. Next up, we have Orleans um, or Orleans, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I'm not sure if I'm saying either right, but um, in this game, this is listed as a 2014, but I'm actually not going to talk about it because it really didn't see any kind of wide distribution at all until 2015, until this past year. Um, I think only people, my listeners maybe who are uh, over in Europe, uh, would have seen this game in 2014. It had such rarity here. Uh, I did get a copy of it. I got a DLP copy of it. Uh, way before most people did through GameSurplus.com, because that's kind of what Velma does. Um, but even that was still in 2015. It wasn't in 2014. So I'm, you know, I, I think officially that was its release date. But because of the distribution here in the States, and I record in the States, um, I'm going to leave that off the list. It'll probably appear in next year's list. Moving on down, we have a game called Arcadia Quest, which I sadly have absolutely no experience with. It's kind of a, if I'm remembering, it's like a tactical minis kind of thing with these uh, really detailed kind of cute miniatures. Um, it's kind of a combat game, I think, but I, I've never played it, so I don't know anything about it. Uh, we're going to leave that one behind. Next up, we have the game Istanbul. Uh, this is one that uh, uh, was in my collection and is still in my collection. Um, it hasn't been played in a while, though. i got to be honest. Um, this is one that uh, is from one of my more favorite designers, which is Rudiger Dorn. And it plays two to five players, and it's got this really nifty kind of modular board setup system, whereby um, you know every time that you play the game, it's going to be slightly different. And at its heart, it's a pick-up-and-deliver-and-race game. Um, you're kind of moving around the board with this really fascinating mechanic. Uh, Richard Gordon is like a master of these interesting auction mechanics, you know, going back to Goa and, um, you know, the way you place your auction tokens on the grid. This is kind of like that sort of system where you're kind of dropping people off as you go. Uh, these family members, they're not really family members, they're like, you know, people who work for you. Um, and then you're going to be taking actions, and each tile uh, where you land can give you a different action. So uh, it, the game rewards efficiency because if you can kind of pick your people back up as you're moving back through this modular board that is made up of these uh, lovely rectangular tiles of beautiful artwork, um, you can kind of extend your turn before you have to do eventually what everybody needs to do, which is go back to the fountain and say, hey guys, we're all meeting here, and then you kind of gather everybody up, and you stack up all your little workers again on, on into one stack, and then you can start moving again. 
At its heart, though, you're trying to kind of gather these different kinds of resources so that you can purchase these gems. And the gems are eventually what's going to win you the game. I think you have to collect five or six. It depends on the number of players. And it's kind of a race game. So you have a pick up and deliver with a race game kind of aspect. So whoever can get uh, the required number of gems first wins the game. So I find the game to be um, pretty easy to teach, uh, really thinky in a good way, very tactical, um, very interesting. There's a little bit of take that uh, in this kind of jail mechanism um, that's in the game. Um, really interesting blocking, um, a very dynamic game, a lot of fun. I played this game over and over and over when we first got it. And then it kind of slipped by the wayside a little bit. I didn't play it as much anymore. Um, and I haven't played it probably, truth be told, in like five, six months. But it's still in my collection. I understand that the expansion, uh, which came out this year, uh, adds quite a bit to the game. Um, and people really seem to be responding positively to it. But I did find after a while, God, we must have played it 15, maybe 20 times. My wife loved it. My kids liked it. So we played it a lot. Um, I just kind of felt that after a while, it was still fun, but it wasn't offering any kind of new challenges or new things for me to think about. And so after a while, I kind of uh, set it aside, but I haven't let it go yet because I really do like the design. I like the designer, and I'm, I'm curious to try that expansion. <clears throat> so next up on the list is Lagranja. Um, Lagranja is another one that's tricky because it's listed as a 2014 release, but it didn't really get wider distribution until 2015. Um, it was released by Spielworks, though, in 2014, and it was available here, um, I believe, in the U.S. through an exclusive distribution through one of the online retailers. I forget who it was. And so it was possible to pre-order and get it. But I really kind of feel like, um, you know, the Granja is one of these games that kind of straddles uh, really, really in a difficult way for me doing this show. But I'm going to go ahead and talk about it because I think it was easier to get a hold of, uh, certainly, than uh, you know the earlier game that I was talking about, who's now escaping. Oh, Orleans uh, or Orleans. Uh, Le Grand Hot is a really interesting game from Spielworks originally. I think it's Michael Keller is one of the designers. Um, and, and the cool thing about Le Grand Hot is... It, it's I've done a whole show on it, so if you really want to listen to like a, a full in-depth discussion, you can go back in the archive at uh, thelongviewpodcast.com and you can uh, check it out there. Um, but basically what it does is it, it uses multi-use cards, and I am a sucker for any multi-use card game because the cards are either going to serve as an order that you need to fill, they're going to give you a special ability that only you have, they're going to expand your... Uh, farmland, or they're going to uh, add on to your round-by-round uh, -round income or add space on your farm for animals. And so depending on how you play the cards, every single game is really, really different. There are a few things that are kind of samey about it after a while, in particular the building of your the covering of your barn, which is a little strange, um, but it, it's a, kind of a, a puzzle that you have to solve every game, and it's more of an economic kind of a thing. Like, it's cheaper to do it early, uh, but it's sometimes easier to do it later, though more expensive. But it's a really fascinating game, and one that I continue to really enjoy, and it's because it's got all that Euro-y goodness of building things and making your own little area and your own little engine. It's got the awesome Carl Chudik kind of multiple-use card thing, which I absolutely adore and find fascinating and makes for infinite almost replayability. 
And then it has this wonderful knife fight um, in the market board in the center of the table, which is just really nasty, uh, where people are like booting each other out and putting each other out of business. And, you know, my market stand is better than yours. You know, you got to move along now. And, and, you know, you're scoring points for having uh, stands in the market. And uh, yet people can come and, and kind of rest you out of your position. And, uh, you know, so it's it's got all the things that I like, plus the interaction. So, to me, this is a game that really fires on all cylinders, and that's why uh, La Granja is one of my favorites um, from 2014. Uh, next up, we have uh, Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, this game came out uh, 2014. Uh, this is another one of these kind of social kind of deduction games. One person plays uh, the sheriff, and all of the other players are going to attempt to collect sets of goods and also smuggle valuable contraband by placing cards um, into these little envelopes. Uh, but the sheriff can kind of demand to see anybody's envelope if he thinks they're trying to smuggle contraband. And if the sheriff catches them, then the players have to pay a penalty to the sheriff. If the sheriff is wrong, uh, then uh, you know the, the, there's a penalty for the sheriff, um, and all the players who haven't been kind of checked or searched get kind of get to take their cards and add them to their display, whether they're contraband or not. And so, it's an interesting game. It's one that did not strike any chords for me. I just did not care for it. Um, I felt that it went on way too long for what it was. I felt that there was no real advantage to not trying to smuggle contraband. It seemed like if you tried to play honestly and you tried to just kind of be truthful about the number of cards and type of cards you had and, you know, not run the risk of getting snagged and paying a penalty, there, there's no way you're going to win. Like, you, you have to try and smuggle. And so then it becomes kind of just a almost a luck fest. It's like, am I going to get picked? Am I not going to get picked? If you have a reputation in social games, I found there's this whole metagame problem where if you have a reputation in other kind of social deduction games for being kind of sneaky or tricky, then they're always going to check you. They're like, oh, I'm always going to check you because, you know, you remember in, you know, this game in Spyfall, you did this. Or, you know, remember in Resistance, you always are the one that does this. I, I want to see it. And so, like, they check you every round. It's like, well, then that's never going to work for me. Like, there has to be at least one or two rounds where I'm not going to be checked in order for me to be able to smuggle any contraband. And it's like, if everyone's always going to check me, then ugh, it's just no fun. Like, there's no point in this. And so, to me, the metagame in uh, Sheriff of Nottingham kind of killed the game, at least for my group. I don't know if others have had the same kind of bleed over. It's this, it's this kind of interesting kind of crossover um, that I kind of noticed with my gaming group. And so Sheriff of Nottingham kind of fell flat for us. Nice looking game, nicely produced, interesting ideas, but I felt it was too long for what it was. And the metagame actually got in the way of the game for us. So that's why Sheriff of Nottingham is one that is not in my collection and I've left behind. Uh, in 2014, we also had One Night Ultimate Werewolf. There's not much that can be said about this game that hasn't already been said, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it at all. But I don't want you to make—I don't want you to think that that means I don't think it's a good game. Um, One Night Ultimate Werewolf is an amazing game. Really, kind of changed the genre. Used electronics in a wonderful way with you know Eric Summers' recorded voice. Um, but the idea of being able to play Werewolf without a moderator was awesome. 
and the way that the roles work and the things are changed. And so what you think you know, you don't know. And it's just, it's, it's awesome because in the discussion that it leads to when everybody opens their eyes and begins to talk is always a blast because, you know, it's like, well, I'm a villager, but apparently I'm not because someone else was a troublemaker and swapped my token. But I didn't know that they did that, but they're telling me they did. But I can't really like look and confirm for myself whether I'm the werewolf or the villager. And I think maybe they're just trying to throw a smoke screen. And so there's all this double think and uh, really great, interesting kind of conversations. And there's ways that you can deduce a lot of times whether or not somebody is being truthful or lying. So there's a little bit of skill involved. And so to me, it's an awesome game. And that's why it's still in my collection, uh, along with the expansion uh, Daybreak, which I, I um, uh, like quite a bit as well, just kind of freshen things up a little bit. Um, we're coming down to the end of what it is that I'm going to be uh, reviewing. I'm only going so far down the list here. Um, but uh, next up is Zaya, Legends of a Drift System. Uh, this is a game that I reviewed extensively, so again, you can go back and check that out in the archives if you'd like to take a, a listen to that. Um, what I can say about Zaya is this. Really interesting ideas. Um, that open-ended feel where you kind of get to choose the direction you want to go, and I love the fact you can kind of almost shift gears mid-game and kind of abandon one approach and go for another one. And the game has got some uh, interesting kind of Tetris applications with how you can customize your ship. And um, I, I, I really enjoyed it. There's a good amount of randomness, though. The die rolls can sometimes get in the way. And you can really either... They, they cause a lot of swing in the game that I think a lot of people are not necessarily prepared to deal with. Uh, I was okay with it, but it was something that I knew bothered a lot of people, including some of the people I played it with. My biggest complaint about Zaya was simply that all of the kind of technology upgrades had to do with either your engines or your weapons or your defenses, and that was kind of it. Like, there really wasn't any other kind of obvious and interesting differentiations and so, therefore, to me, I, I kind of felt that was a missed opportunity. Uh, the production was beautiful. The minis were awesome. Um, the graphic design was uh, sometimes a little sketchy. But, uh, boy, I mean, the, the, metal, the metal coins and uh, the thickness of the tiles and the components, just really nice stuff. So, um, Zaya was an interesting game. Um, it's no longer in my collection, however. Next up, we have Marvel Dice Masters, Avengers vs. X-Men. came out in 2014 and then was almost immediately unavailable until like 2015, but it really was released in 2014. They just did a terrible job of uh, understanding the demand for uh, this product. Uh, this game went a huge way towards solving what I hated about Quarriers and made the game much more interesting and tied it to an IP that I really, really like and have grown to care for. Um, I wasn't a comic book kid growing up at all, but boy, you know, with all of the movies and whatnot, I've really gotten into all of the sort of superhero worlds and, and all of the different shows and movies and whatnot. And this game, I thought, did a much better job of using some of the ideas in Couriers and turning it into a much better game. Um, Couriers, I just couldn't stand. This one, I enjoyed. Uh, I played it with my son for a while. I got a lot of sets, a lot of boosters, you know, Age of Ultron, which came out later. There's another one that came out. Uh, I tried the D&D one, didn't care for that. Um, and so I, I enjoyed the system, 
but it kind of has just fallen out of the rotation. It seems like it just didn't stand the test of time. Uh, my son kind of lost interest in it. I was kind of like, eh, you know, and, and then I stopped pushing for it. Um, you know, as he kind of has, has morphed into someone who wants to play meteor games like innovation and stuff like that, um, we've kind of left this one behind. Um, I still am always a little bit uncomfortable with the theme of like, why are the superheroes fighting other superheroes? I would have loved it if it was superheroes versus supervillains. Um, but you know, that, that always kind of bothered me from a narrative standpoint. Uh, I understand, you know, like the next, uh, Marvel movie is civil war and, you know, well, sometimes they did fight. Well, yeah, but like, I don't know, to me, I still prefer the sort of purity of, you know, the, the superheroes versus the supervillains. And, and I would have liked to have seen that kind of system in place, um, a little bit more than what we have here. But I think as a whole, the system's a good one. I like the kind of KO system. I like the recycling. I like the way everything kind of works in this game. I like the differentiation of the cards. I like the boosters. They were cheap. You know, you pay a buck, you get a new die, you get, a, you know, some cards. I mean, this, this is neat. Um, so I enjoyed it, but it seems like even the company itself is kind of fading a little bit. I'm not seeing, um, you know, those gravity feeds of boosters anymore in my local stores. Um, I haven't seen a new set in a little while. I see them on Amazon, but I don't see them in stores. So I don't know whether it's just my store and my community that seems to be falling out of love with this game or whether it's a general trend, but it hasn't really stood the test of time for us. Next up, we have King of New York, released in 2014. Uh, this is a game that, uh, man, I don't know. In some ways, I like it better because it's a little more involved. There's more choices than there are in King of Tokyo. But I almost think King of New York takes King of Tokyo to somewhere that it doesn't really need to be. Like, King of Tokyo is just a much more pure game, I think. And it's just much better, I think, at doing what it is supposed to do, which is be a smackdown player versus player in your face dice chucking laughter festival it's just awesome um king of new york tries to kind of take it more into a gamerly kind of an area and it's it succeeds like it, it works it does that there's no doubt that it does that whether or not i want it to do that is what i'm talking about and so i'm on the fence with it i've still got it in my collection but i've thought a few times about maybe letting it go i, I just i don't know i don't know um I enjoy the game, but I think a lot of times when I go, if my kids suggest it, and sometimes they still do, um, we always end up seeing to pull down King of Tokyo with the power-up expansions, then, um, you know, in the evolution cards, then pulling down King of New York. King of New York just doesn't seem to get selected as awesome, uh, as often, not as awesome, maybe because it's not as awesome as King of Tokyo. So um, King of New York, jury's still out on that one for me. Uh, next up, we have uh, Pandemic the Cure. Awesome game. Um, this is a wonderful dice implementation of Pandemic. And if you're looking for that idea of Pandemic Express, of, um, you know, you just love dice, you love dice versions of games, this is a no-brainer. I mean, it's a fun game. It's beautifully produced. The dice are awesome. The components are great. It's just, it's a great game. Um, I, I have no problems with this game. I think, though, I would rather play Pandemic, and I would certainly rather play Pandemic Legacy. So this is still in my collection because my wife loves dice games, and all of my children except one like dice games. So it's still there. I still enjoy it. I think it's a good, quick, easy to set up. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Easy to set up, quick to play, um, interesting decisions, uh, randomness to keep you on your toes, 
really a neat game, managing the dice and managing what's in the, the CDC center, um, you know, and, and what you put back in the bag versus what you cure and pull back into that center ring that, um, I don't know if it's a CDC ring, but it's kind of the, the center ring, um, you know, how many samples you take, the fact that when you take samples, you're actually kind of minimizing your actions on future turns because your dice are being occupied by sample vials. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful design idea. And it makes the decisions really tough. And so I really like this game. Um, it's going to be in my collection for a while. Uh, let's see. Uh, we have a Power Grid expansion, which I have no experience with. We have Spyfall listed. But Spyfall, again, I just got Spyfall at Gen Con 2015. And I like, had to like wade through a crowd of people to do it. There's just, I, I, there's no, I know it was out in 2014, but it was not something that I don't think was anywhere close to wild, uh, widely available until 2015, so I'm going to leave that there. Uh, Deus is up next. Um, this is a really nifty game, and it's very Euro-y, and I love how the cards work, but I don't like how the board works. And so you have this really interesting tableau-building part of the game, which is really nifty, and it's something that I continue to have fun exploring uh, the sort of economy of having the pieces, getting the pieces onto your board so that you can then put them onto the main board um, and you can, you know, add cards to your display. And every time you add a card of a color to your display, uh, there's like, I think, five different colors. And every time you add a card to a column of colors, you activate all of the previous cards too. It's like this cascade effect, which is awesome. And leads to really satisfying game turns and interesting decisions and tableau building strategy. Really cool. The main board is just a little too vanilla and blah kind of for my liking. And it's a little bit of that kind of heartless Euro thing, you know. It's definitely a good game. It's definitely Euro. But to me, if you're going to have a Civ game and you're not really going to have direct conflict, only blocking... That, that never sits entirely well with me. Like, it's, there has to be some kind of deeper interaction if you're going to pretend to kind of have a civ-building game. So don't get me wrong, Deus is still in my collection. My wife loves it. Um, my, my son likes it. And I like it. But if they didn't like it, I probably would have moved it on by now. Um, this is a game that generally she will request. I don't request it. But anything that the wife likes is fine with me. And I'm sure anybody out there listening, if your husband or your wife or your uh, your partner really likes the game, you're going to hang on to it, of course. So to me, this is a fun game, but one that fell a little bit short in terms of that Civ kind of feel that I was kind of hoping for. Next title is Kanban Automotive Revolution. Uh, this is a game that uh, I have a good amount of experience with. This is the one Vital Lacerda game that I'm not a huge fan of. Um, it is challenging, no doubt. It is innovative, no doubt. A worker placement game with one worker? You know, what? It's crazy. You know, uh, There's an interesting AI in the game in the, in the, the form of the boss, Sandra. Um, there is this ridiculously obtuse kind of scoring system um, that, that's these board meetings that happen uh, during the game. It's just very convoluted, very complex. This game, to me, in a lot of ways, seems 
very complex for the sake of being complex. Like uh, Vital's other games, like CO2 and Vinos, and uh, you know his newest one, The Gallerist, which is awesome. Like the complexity was there for a reason that I could discern readily and handily. In Kanban, there were things that were going on that I don't know. I just that just rubbed me a little bit the wrong way, and that seemed needlessly kind of complex and fiddly. And so it's a good game, no doubt. It is a game that has a lot of fans, but for me, it left me a little flat. And it, it just wasn't hugely inspiring to me. Um, and so that was a game that um, was in my collection for a while. I played it quite a bit, um, probably about six or seven times, uh, which for a game that I'm kind of undecided on is pretty good. Um, but at the end of the day, I kind of decided it just was not really for me. Uh, next up, we have a uh, Marvel Dice Masters expansion, uh, Shadows of Brimstone, uh, City of the Ancients, which I have no experience with. And then we're going to get down to our barrier of 300 that I artificially put on myself. Uh, the next one is Aquasphere from uh, 2014, Stefan Feld. And uh, this is one that was not widely available, I think, until last year here in the States, but it was available. Like Game Surplus was bringing them in left and right. I know that there are quite a few people that had them. It wasn't super difficult uh, to get a hold of. I think it was a Pegasus Spiele, so uh, people were getting it from Amazon.d. Um, Aquasphere is probably the first Stefan... Well, no, La Isla, I hate. God, that's a terrible game. Um, but Aquasphere is one I still have it, but I don't know for how long. It is, and one of the reasons I still have it is because my copy was missing a piece. So, like, I know if I try to, like, trade it away, I'm going to have a problem because the one piece that's missing is one of these tokens that you need for the kind of, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, programming display that you need. And so uh, somebody would not be happy about that. So I, I think I'm kind of, I've got it, whether I like it or not. This reminds me a little bit of Kanban. It's, like, complex, like, for the sake of complexity and um, I really like Stefan Feld games, but this one seems just kind of odd to me. Like the, the, the thematic disconnect was kind of huge. Like why am I hunting these squids and why, putting these submarines in these locations? Why does it matter if I have a majority of submarines or I have the submarines in every location? And what's this little weird research station I'm building on my own? And um, why is it so difficult to move from one place to another? And why do the robots kick each other out? And there's just all these weird kind of questions that, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of came down to saying, well, they, it, they're there for a mechanical reason, but no thematic reason. Now, I know that sounds odd talking about a Stefan Feld game because he's never really huge on thematics to begin with. But this one in particular, I found to be extremely disconnected from a thematics point of view. And so that's why, I mean, I've played this maybe four times, um, if that, and I'm not super duper happy with it. Um, it's probably next to La Isla, my least favorite Stefan Feld. Uh, La Isla is just terrible. Um, if I was Tom Vassell, I'd probably burn it somewhere. Um, but this one, I can see that there is a challenging game here. I mean, it is a tough game and it is one that I can tell is going to reward repeated play. I just don't know if I'm interested in exploring it because of the sort of weird thematic disconnect. So, uh, that's Aquasphere. That takes us to the last one, which would be Colt Express, which sadly I have not played, even though it's an award winner. Um, it's one of those that every time I 
go and put it in an order somewhere. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll throw Cold Express in. And then for a while, it was like gone. It was like out of print. And so that kind of faded away. And then it kind of recently popped on my radar again. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll pick up Cold Express. But so far, it just hasn't happened. So uh, unfortunately, that's a game that I don't have any experience with. Um, now, understand, there are a lot of other games that I would love to talk about more uh, that are kind of below this 300 threshold that I kind of artificially set for myself. Games like Paperback, absolutely love it. Uh, Fire in the Lake, I mean, geez, you know, uh, Camel Up is down there. Battle of Five Armies, um, Panamax uh, is down there. Um, there's so, Thunder Alley. I mean, there's so many other great games that are in here, but I have to kind of stop this somewhere. Uh, and so I kind of felt if I go through the, the, the games that are now listed in the top 200, uh, all the way up to, you know, the number 300, uh, that would probably be give a, you know, a nice balance between kind of like what I think are games that are uh, kind of good that have stood the test of time. And also the community has really kind of focused on and said, you know, these are good games because they're within, you know, that, that top one to, uh, you know, 299, um, you know, which is not to say these other games are not worthy of your attention. And I would certainly encourage you to take a look back and uh, check out some of these other games like Paperback or Hyperborea uh, or Thunder Alley or, um, you know, Panamax, of course, or, uh, Fire in the Lake. I mean, th these are fantastic games. Uh, Red 7 is in there. Uh, all kinds of just really kind of interesting, wonderful games um, that uh, are certainly worthy of discussion. I I'm still flipping here, you know, Diamonds. Um, Virsindas Volk, which I think is more of a 2015 than 2014 release. Uh, there's the dreaded La Isla, uh, which I still give mean looks to. Um, so there's a lot of other games, but um, you know, for these lists, I try to keep it uh, in, in that kind of upper end to kind of balance my views with, um, you know, what the community kind of at large is saying. So I think we're going to cut it there. So that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View, uh, The Long View of 2014 and 2016. So uh, thanks to everybody out there uh, for listening. I hope that you find this two-year look back um, interesting and uh, something a little bit of uh, difference and variety from all of the 2015 lists. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor. GameSurplus.com. If any of these titles sound intriguing to you, you should definitely shoot them an email at games at GameSurplus.com and see if Velma can track down copies for you. Uh, I'm sure she'll be able to and get them shipped off to you super fast and in super safe condition, which is one of the things that makes Game Surplus such a wonderful place to go to buy board games. So thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night.